Good morning. It's good to see you all. A special welcome to those of you uh, joining online this morning. Uh, I want to take just a moment to say uh, thank you. Uh, thank you for your generosity, the ways in which you give so faithfully uh, to support the ministries of Faith Lutheran Church, truly because of the ways in which you give. We can do what we do uh, here uh, and uh, at least as important, if not more important, out in the world. So thank you so much uh, for your financial uh, giving. I also want to say thank you uh, to many, many of you who give of your time uh, to, uh, in all sorts of different ways, um, but specifically maybe this morning I just kind of want to lift up uh, Sunday morning uh, ways in which many of you come uh, 30, 45 minutes early to set up chairs, uh, set up altar, the rug, the pulpit. Um, we got some volunteers over here, um, professional uh, slide operators, right? Is that, is that a difficult job? Yeah, it's difficult. <laughs> Uh, we got folks running the, uh, uh, what do you call it, the video, uh, live streaming this morning. Uh, Carl and Tara, thank you for uh, serving in that way this morning as well. So lots and lots of different ways to serve on Sunday morning. And uh, there is a sign up back there. And then you should, many of you are getting an email from Debbie uh, throughout the week uh, to uh, sign up as well. So thank you for giving of your time. Uh, what a blessing it is. Well, if you've got your Bibles, I do want to invite you to go to uh, John 2. Uh, we are in uh, the second chapter, finally, uh, of the Gospel of John. If you're new to faith, uh, we are uh, begun a sermon series going through uh, the Gospel of John, uh, chapter by chapter, uh, verse by verse, and uh, I hope you've been uh, following along, coming along on this journey with us. Um, we, we plan to finish up this sermon series sometimes around, sometime around Thanksgiving, uh, but who knows? Uh, it took us four weeks to get through John 1, and uh, we're finally at John 2, so we're just going to kind of see how it goes. We're not in a rush. We're just trying to uh, do a little bit of a deep dive in the Gospel of John. And one last weekend, uh, great, um, Jim uh, Pitzer shared with us a little bit about the Lamb of God. I thought that was absolutely awesome. Uh, you know, the interesting thing is I have read through the Gospel of John uh, probably several dozen times, many, many times, and I have never uh, had uh, the Lamb of God jump out at me as uh, Jim shared with us last Sunday morning. So uh, that, that's the miracle and the wonder and the mystery of God's Word. You can read it over and over and over, and if you're open uh, to God's Word, uh, there's always a fresh new voice, something new that can speak to us. But we got to be open, right? Uh, we have to be open to God's Word. Uh, so thank you, Jim, for uh, sharing what you shared last weekend. It just really spoke to me and encouraged me. 
I know many of you uh, are reading along uh, in what we're calling a devotional. Uh, truly, this is a, a New Testament commentary. And uh, one thing I just want to say about this is I am intentionally not uh, going to comment on many of the things that Pastor Swindoll is writing about in the book. I'm just going to assume you guys are reading it because I know so many of you are. Uh, and I think uh, his stuff speaks for itself. So, if I'm not hitting on a particular point uh, week to week, what he is hitting on, it's because his stuff is, I think it's, you know, really good enough, I guess, if you will. And so that's why I'm not addressing this. I am actually assuming uh, that many of you are reading through this uh, in your daily devotional time. And, and by the way, if you're a guest this morning, um, we've got a special copy for you. Uh, they're back there on the welcome table. Make sure you pick one of these up, and inside is a reading plan and I just want to uh, encourage you to, to read along and follow along with us. This is just a gift for you today if you don't have one of these. Uh, we want everyone to have one, even if you never come back to Faith Lutheran again. Uh, we just want to say thanks for being here, and here's a gift for you. Um, well, today uh, we are looking at a particular text uh, about the wedding of Cana. And so it begins the, uh, the seven signs in the Gospel of John. Seven signs. Now, oftentimes when we hear about these seven different things that are happening throughout the Gospel of John, we think, you know, the, that looks like a miracle, right? And John, uh, the writer, chooses his language very, very carefully. He doesn't identify these as uh, uh, miracles. He actually identifies them as signs. And the distinction I would make uh, between a miracle and a sign is a miracle is a lot like a selfie, Hey, look at me. It draws attention to the self, right? And Jesus certainly could have done that. Whereas a sign uh, says, uh, look at that. It points beyond itself. So that's the key distinction. Uh, a sign uh, can be every bit as miraculous as a miracle, but it's not about the miracle itself. The sign points to someone else um, and, and the person of Jesus Christ. And not just who he is, um, but why he came into the world. All right, did I give you enough time to get to John 2? All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Uh, Lord, we thank you for an opportunity to gather together as your people, both in person uh, and online. Lord, we thank you for um, the ways in which your word speaks to us, your word renews us, your word challenges us, and your word invites us. Um, to walk deeper with you as we walk deeper with one another. Lord, as we uh, read this very familiar story this morning, uh, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, uh, it's wintertime, uh, and I am in the middle of planning two weddings this summer. Uh, one wedding, uh, outdoor wedding, uh, my son Q and uh, his fiance Sydney are getting uh, married up near Starved Rock, and it's um, mostly fun uh, going through the details and planning that wedding. I'm looking forward to being the dad uh, and not the pastor for that, but if you've ever planned a wedding, weddings can be a little bit stressful. Um, they can be kind of a little bit crazy, right? And so uh, that's one wedding, and uh, more than anything, frankly, I'm just uh, thrilled uh, about uh, 
Sydney and her uh, coming into our family and uh, officially becoming part of the family. And isn't it great when your child marries up? Uh, they marry someone, you know, who's just, you know, going to, I don't know, take care of your child who needs a little bit of help. And so that's just, <laughs> it's just great. You know, it's, it's, it's awesome. And I'm looking forward to that. So, um, uh, uh, but the other wedding uh, I'm, I'm uh, preparing for right now uh, is also this summer, also outdoors. Um, and uh, this is a wedding between Jenny and Garrison. And uh, this is really fun because I'm going to be uh, the presiding pastor for this wedding. And uh, in a few months, uh, about, I don't know, 100-ish people will gather from around the country. They'll show up in uh, Muhammad uh, or at Muhammad. And uh, to uh, uh, Lake of the Woods uh, Forest Preserve, and um, it's it, you know there's going to be um, uh, some music playing and um, uh, lots of excitement and energy, and 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 pretty soon uh, there will be a line of uh, young men all dressed up in suits, and then another line of of young ladies in dresses, and they're going to look like a million bucks. And then I would imagine the music is going to change. And down the aisle, John will walk, Jenny. Probably lots of tears, right? Mostly by John, right? They'll stand before me. The music will stop. We'll read some scripture. We'll say some prayers. I will deliver an eloquent, beautiful message filled with words of wisdom for them to base their lives on. There'll be an exchange of rings, exchange of vows. And then I'll read a, a, a wedding prayer. And this is the same prayer that I have prayed over couples at 50-some-odd weddings that I've presided at. And I want to read it to you this morning because if you uh, go to a wedding this summer, uh, you'll probably hear this prayer, but what you'll actually hear is wah, 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 right? Because when you show up at a wedding, you're not really paying attention to the pastor and all the words that are going on. You're just in the moment. So I want you to hear these words this morning that I pray, that I will pray. Uh, over Jenny and Garrison's uh, at their wedding and over their married life. We give you thanks, most gracious God, for in your great love, you created us male and female, and you made the union of husband and wife an image of the covenant between you and your people. You sent Christ to come among us, making your love visible in him to bring new life to the world. Send now your Holy Spirit to pour the abundance of your blessing on Garrison and Jenny, who on this day give themselves to each other in holy marriage. Sound familiar? You heard these words before? Maybe some of you, if you've a, a, a particularly attended a, a Lutheran wedding before. Anybody going to a wedding this summer? Anybody else plan on going to a wedding? All right, a few of you. Yeah, you might hear these words prayed this summer uh, if you are going to a marriage union. You know, I just want to read this again. You created us male and female and made the union of a husband and wife an image of the covenant between you and your people. 
And I think it's really easy to miss this language, this image of a, a, a covenant between God and God's people. And that's the setup for the wedding of Cana. And so this morning, I want you to hear these words from John 2, beginning with verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw, out, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone who brings out choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. And so this is the first sign that Jesus is going to perform of these seven signs. And at some level, it's kind of strange that this is the very first sign, or we'll just say the very first miracle that Jesus performs to communicate who he is, that he is the Son of God. I mean, if it were me, if it were up to me, I would do something different rather than turning water into wine. I might just stand before you if I were Jesus and just levitate, and you all would be like, wow. I mean, that's a pretty good um, a miracle, right? Or maybe I would be like, okay, guys, we're going to go outside. I want you, everybody to look up in the sky, and you would all look up in the sky, and you would see the stars moving around, and all of a sudden, the name Jesus is in the sky. That'd be a pretty neat miracle too, right? I mean, I can think of a lot of miracles to get people's attention uh, to help them to believe that I'm the Son of God if I'm Jesus, Right? Or maybe I would show up at a funeral and I would just bring someone back to life. Or maybe I would go to a cemetery and just bring 25 people back to life. I mean, that would be a pretty awesome miracle as well, right? I mean, there's all kinds of things that Jesus could have done to perform a miracle. His, his kind of great coming out party to let everybody know to begin to inaugurate his public ministry. And Jesus is like, ah, I'm going to do it this way. I'm going to change water into wine at a wedding. Kind of interesting. In some ways, it's not so interesting. In some ways, it's not so surprising. And so this morning, I want to share with you 
four reasons why I think Jesus turned water into wine. Four reasons why Jesus turned water into wine on that day, I think, and things that I've heard. Number one, to point to God's character of compassion for real world needs and desires. To reveal himself, his character, his nature, that he is a compassionate God, that he actually cares about us. He cares about you, not only your needs, but also your desires. It says, when the wine was gone. And we can think about all the problems, all the issues, all the challenges, all the things that are wrong in the world today. And even in Jesus' day. I think we can think about all the many, many things that were broken and in need of a miracle. This probably isn't the biggest problem of the day. We ran out of wine at a wedding party. Sure, the groom's going to be embarrassed. The groom and his family will even be shamed. And yet, this is the very first sign that Jesus performs to point, I think, to his character of who he is. Jesus cares about the big things in your life and even the small things in your life. And I want to encourage you to not hold back and say, oh, God's got so many other things. He's busy with other things. And, and not, don't hold back. Lift up those little things, even those desires in your life. Share them with God. Because God cares about you, and God can use even those little things to reveal himself to you because he is a loving and compassionate God. Uh, when I was in seminary, uh, I lived with an 84-year-old guy, and uh, he was an interesting guy. This is in Los Angeles. And um, we would drive around in his 1984 uh, Chevrolet Chevette um, to different places, and he would show us all over Los Angeles. And he was always having conversations with God. And uh, just wherever we would go, he would be talking to God, and we would pull into a parking spot, and he would say, Thank you, Lord, for the parking spot. And I was in seminary, you know, I'm thinking, you know, theological things, big things, you know, the, 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 the big challenges of the world. And there was my roommate, Alden. Thank you, Lord, for finding a parking spot for me. And I thought, man, this guy is just so light and fluffy. But as I read this story, the wedding of Cana, maybe Alden wasn't so far off. Maybe it just really is about pointing to a God, to Jesus, someone who loves us. Reason number two, I think, uh, why Jesus turned water into wine on that day, uh, to point to the power of prayer, or because his mother asked him. Not a bad reason, right? You know, we went through a sermon series uh, last year on the sovereignty of God, and the sovereignty of God simply means God's going to do what God's going to do. God's in control. God's in power. God's going to do some amazing stuff with or without you. But sometimes, and we read this throughout Scripture, 
Sometimes God only moves, and I don't get how all this works when we ask Him. So we need not be afraid to ask God to move. I mean, Mary said, hey, they're out of wine. Do something. Is that why Jesus turned the water into wine on that day? Maybe. We need to not be afraid to bring our prayers to God in all things. The Bible also tells us you have not because you ask not. God knows what's in our hearts, in our minds. He knows what we need. He knows what we want. But sometimes we still need to ask. Reason number three why I think Jesus turned the water into wine. To point to his greater redemptive purpose. Remember, that's what a sign is. It points to something greater. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And what those six stone jars represented was the Old Covenant, the Old Testament, this idea of water and purification. And what we read about in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant, is that the people worshipped a holy and perfect God, but sin separated this holy and perfect God from the sinful, broken people of the world. And so we read throughout the Old Testament, in these different books, these different rites, these different rituals, where people, in order for them to come into the presence of this holy and perfect God, is they needed to become clean. They needed to wash themselves. And not so much that these things would actually cleanse them, but it reminded them whenever they cleansed themselves that God is perfect and holy and just, and they were not. And so they would go through these rites, these rituals. And so as we look these clay pots, they represent the old covenant, the old way of doing things. And at a wedding party, uh, much like this, people would show up. They didn't bathe as often as we do. How many of you have bathed in the last week? <laughs> and if you haven't, don't raise your hand, right? I mean, people in ancient times, they did not bathe very often. Sometimes weeks and weeks and weeks, sometimes months, right? I mean, they were nasty. They were gross. I mean, they were just simply filthy. And remember, back in the day before forks and spoons were in invented, uh, people would eat with their hands. So not only do they have, you know, just general dirt and grossness all over them, but they've also got, they eat with their hands, and so it's, it's hand to mouth. And so when they would come and, and they're, they're preparing to eat, they would show up with these, these jars of water. They would put their hands in there up to their elbows. They would scrub their arms really, because they're getting ready to eat, right? And, and they're just wiping off all the grease and the grime and the camel dung and everything else, right? Everything from their lives. And then they pull them out and 
No paper towels, no blow dryers, and they would just air dry their hands because they're getting ready to eat, getting ready for this uh, wedding celebration. I mean, that's what's going on. That's what these jars are. That's what they represent. They're very functional. So imagine, let's just say at this wedding of Cana, 100 people show up, 100 people dip their grimy arms and hands and fingers into these clay water pots for ceremonial ritual cleaning. They, they get everything good and clean. And so these are filled with dishwater, right? We might even say wastewater. Now at this point in time, it's probably several days later, so it's um, nasty, dirty, gross dishwater, This is not drinking water. This is water that has been used to clean up the grime and the muck and the nastiness from people's lives. And Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's filter out that water and clean it up. Jesus doesn't say, hey, let's clean up those jars on the outside. Jesus says, I'm going to do something completely new. I'm going to turn that dirty dishwater, that nasty wastewater, not into just clean water, but into something entirely new. See, oftentimes as as, as Christians, we think, you know, what what God is doing in our midst or in our lives is is he's, he's cleaning us up. He's taking the bad out of our lives and making us good. And John is crystal clear. That's not what Jesus does. He's actually making us new. Something brand new. And as we look at these six stone jars that represent the old covenant, Jesus, who represents the new covenant, says, I'm doing something completely new. I fulfilled everything in the Old Testament, everything in the Old Covenant. Now we're doing something brand new. I think the fourth reason why Jesus turned the water into the wine is to point to the ultimate relationship between God and His church, those who are in Christ. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of signs through which he revealed his glory. I think it's not just about the water turned to wine. I think it's that the fact that it happened at a party, a wedding party, I think the the, the imagery there, the symbolism We cannot overlook. It wasn't just a random uh, party in the neighborhood. It It was a wedding party, which is a celebration. And as I read to you a little while ago, a marriage union is a sign of the covenantal relationship between God and His people. I think in many ways... It's a perfect image, a perfect sign for Jesus to explain who he is as the Son of God. Because don't forget, the Bible actually begins with a wedding. Remember, we go back to Genesis. God created, and it was good. God created. Everything was good, right? Until it wasn't good. 
The first not good in the Bible was when it says when Adam was all alone. So it says that God created a woman from a man. And then it was good. And then there was a wedding. The first wedding actually happened in Genesis 2. It's if you read through Genesis 2, 20 to 24, it's this great marriage, this great image. So I want to kind of break down Genesis 24, 2, 24 with you this morning. You're going to know these words. I didn't create this, by the way, but I ran across this a couple of years ago, and I, th I think it's good. I think it's helpful. This is why a man... Not a boy, a man. Meaning it requires some maturity. Leaves, there's some transition. His father and mother, a model of a complete family. And becomes attached. There's a new relationship, a new family to his wife. There's a complementarian aspect to this. And they become a process of learning, friendship, and trust. One flesh. This deep intimacy between two people. First wedding in the Bible. You know, oftentimes I think... Um, Maybe especially today, we think of a, a, a wedding or a marriage union as something that we as human beings have developed, right? But it's just not true. We did not create marriage unions. God did. He established it in Genesis 2. And so I think it's a little interesting, I think it's a little curious that the Supreme Court and other uh, governmental bodies try to redefine what marriage is. And I guess as government people, they can do that. That's fine for tax purposes and, you know, all those other things. That's fine. But to be clear, a marriage union was created and defined by God. In his word. And I know this puts us at odds with the culture, with society. I wouldn't even be surprised if this message gets put up on YouTube and gets pulled down as hate speech. Because that's how it's defined now. You know that, right? But if we don't stand on God's word, folks, we're toast. The Bible begins with a marriage. The wedding. But did you know that the Bible also ends with a marriage, with a wedding? In the book of Revelation, it's recorded in Revelation 19 and 21. And I can't help but wonder if there's Jesus at the wedding of Cana thinking about his own marriage. And some of you are like, wait a second, I don't remember Jesus getting married. You've read the Bible, right? Remember Jesus' wedding? You're like, no. Jesus never got married while he was on this earth. But Revelation 19 and 21 actually tells us about Jesus, the groom, being married to his bride, the church. 
the people of God. That's what Revelation 19 and 21 talk about. So the Bible begins with a wedding. Uh, the, the Bible ends with a wedding. So at some level, I think it makes perfect sense that Jesus inaugurates his public ministry at a wedding, foreshadowing his own wedding with this marriage union between himself and the church. Revelation 21 says this way, describes this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first earth and the, uh, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. There was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, uh, out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among His people. He will dwell with them and they will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. Isn't that great? It's this great wedding scene in the heavenly realms describing what's going on and this, this idea that God is going to dwell with His people. This, of course, is a major theme of Scripture. Emmanuel, God with us. And we see this over and over and over. And this was always God's plan to dwell with us, to be with us. This is why God created Adam and Eve and they walked together in the garden. But then along came sin, and sin separated Adam and Eve from God, and there was this distance. And over and over, what we read throughout the Old Testament is this old covenant, this, this, uh, this way for God's people to be connected with God. And blood was required, a blood sacrifice, as this reminder that God is perfect, that there has to be a price that is paid for this sin. And then Jesus comes along and says, I'm declaring to you something brand new, a new covenant. And a contract, an agreement is, you know, you do this, I do that, and, and it's all good. But what a covenant says is because it's based on love. And it's, I'm going to love you no matter what. That's what a covenant is. So a marriage covenant looks at this great love at the center and says, no matter what, I'm going to love you. People wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order has passed away. He who is seated on the throne uh, said, I am making all things new. I think about this great wedding feast, this great party in heaven. It's a marriage. And God's not cleaning us up. He's made us new. We are entirely new creations. And so, of course, this image, this is the image, the sign for you and for me. For our eternity with God in heaven. I think it's a beautiful sign. I think it makes perfect sense. I'm going to back up to Revelation 19 because it talks a little bit more about this wedding. 
Then I heard what sounded like a great multitude, like the roaring of the rushing waters, like loud peals of thunder shouting, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and, be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and His bride, that's you and me, has made herself ready. As I was reading this this week, it was, it's, it's, it's the, the wedding of the Lamb, the wedding of the Lamb that we read about last week. That's Jesus. The wedding of the Lamb has come and his, has made, uh, herself, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to, her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of God's holy people. Then the angel said to me, write this. Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Isn't that great? Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's what heaven's going to look like. It's going to be a wedding party. It's going to be a celebration. And we're going to get to be married to Jesus Christ, our groom, there's going to be this wonderful intimacy, this wonderful connection with us and God. I think that's some beautiful symbolism. And until we arrive, those of you who are married, your marriage relationship is supposed to represent this sign in heaven, this unconditional love. Lots of forgiveness. And as I've been kind of camped out on this text all week long, I got to think, I, I was convicted. I'm like, oh boy, that's a heavy load. I don't think my marriage looks like this covenant relationship. I don't know that my marriage is a witness to the world of what the covenant relationship is between God and God's people. So I kind of got kicked in the teeth a little bit this week. And I hope you kick in your teeth a little bit, those of you who are married. How is your marriage relationship a sign to the world that proclaims unconditional love, unity? Because that's what our marriages are supposed to be about. But the last thing I want to say this morning Blessed are those who were invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. On behalf of Jesus Christ, I want to invite you to the wedding supper. You're invited. All are invited. All are invited to receive this relationship, this gift of living with God for all of eternity. I think it's incumbent upon us to ask ourselves, how are we going to respond? No thanks. Ignore. Anybody ever gotten a wedding invitation and just never returned it? Sometimes that's what I think a lot of people in church do. The invitation to be in relationship with God is extended. And people are like, eh. So this morning, I want to invite you again to the wedding banquet with Jesus Christ for all of eternity.
Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great imagery, this great sign, this great miracle of turning water into wine at a wedding feast, a banquet, an event that symbolizes, that is a sign that points to our relationship with you and the invitation you extend to us. And so, Lord, challenge us to respond. Respond to the wedding invitation to walk with you for all of eternity. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, there's so much wrong with the world today. And so, God, we come to you and we ask for your healing. We ask for your presence. We ask, God, for renewal. We ask, Lord, that you would fix up what is broken physically, emotionally, and spiritually. Lord, we pray for the tension and the conflict in the world today. Nations against nations, people against people, ethnic groups against ethnic groups, races against other races, men against women, women against men. God, there are so many divisions, so much brokenness. And so, God, we, we cry out again that you would heal, that you would renew, you would fix you would restore. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we thank you for each and every marriage union in this room and those who are joining online. God, we thank you for the miracle it is whenever you bring two people together, two sinful people together. And yet somehow they figure it out. They work through it. And they forgive one another. God, I want to pray for every marriage union in our congregation and those who are listening for the ways in which there's brokenness, the ways in which there is hurt, ways, God, in which so much pain, so much struggle, distrust, the ways, God, in which our marriages are not as you want them to be, is a sign of the covenant between you and your people. So heal our marriages, Lord. Holy Spirit, come and stand in the gaps those places need to be touched. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. God, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for uh, your church and the ways, God, in which you use this church, your church, Faith Lutheran, to serve. 
Midwest Food Bank. We ask God that you would use this church, your church, to heal and help people who are living on the edge through the ministry, ministry. We pray, Lord, for the church plants that we get to be a part of, for the church plants in Atlanta, Georgia, St. Martin Lutheran, for the church plants in Decatur, Illinois, the Covenant Reformed Baptist Church, for the church plants in Albania, the village, and surrounding area of Texas. We pray, God. Thank you moments ago I said. 